When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. become so wicked that we cannot choose to be righteous. Satan will never have so much power that we cannot choose to follow Christ. No darkness is intense enough to blot out the light of the world. So before you consider running to brighter territory, consider staying firm and letting his light so shine. Now, as I said before, these are choices that are being made, and they are difficult choices. With some of the faithful, including many of the Ammonites, heading to the land northward, choosing to be less in the world in order to be less of the world, or like Helaman, choosing to stay in the world, but refusing to become a part of it. Still others chose a third option, a completely negative one, and that was to be in the world and of the world. And what lay at the root? Pride. You see, here at the end of Helaman 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we see the pride cycle in one of its clearest manifestations. You remember the four groups of students I had arranged in the classroom with the swivel chair in the middle? We just saw prosperity there in the church to the point of astonishing priests and teachers. The word itself kept coming up. Helaman 3, 24 to 26, that's the prosperity stage of the pride cycle. 24, exceedingly great prosperity in the church. 25, so great was the prosperity of the church. 26, the work of the Lord did prosper. It's almost like Mormon is choosing his words carefully to make this as obvious to us as he can. Well, if we give in to the pride cycle instead of swimming upstream, then prosperity seems to lead us down towards pride. And that's what we find in chapter 3, from verse 33 to verse 36. In 33, there was peace, save it were the pride which began to enter into the church. Now here Mormon is wise to clarify, not into the church of God, but into the hearts of the people who profess to belong to the church of God. This is the difference between the church in terms of its doctrine and its practice and the church in terms of its culture. In fact, when people have complained to me about certain aspects of church culture, I've often asked, would you consider this a top-down problem or a bottom-up problem? In other words, top-down, is this how the apostles and prophets want things to be? And so they're teaching us we need to be exclusivistic. We need to be isolationists. We need to be intolerant or unkind. Or is this a bottom-up problem? That this is among certain people who profess to the belong to the church of God. But it isn't what the prophets and apostles are telling us. That sadly, some people 
behave a certain way. But that's professing church members rather than the church institutionally itself. But again, it starts with pride. 34, they were lifted up in pride to the point that they persecuted their brethren. 36, still relatively peaceful, save it were the exceedingly great pride which had gotten into the hearts of the people. Remember that pride was only beginning in 33. By 36, it's now exceedingly great. And how did it grow? Because it found something to feed on, namely the heart of the people. That's why Lucifer aims for it. That's why Coriantumr marched straight into Zarahemla. And it came because of their exceedingly great riches and their prosperity in the land. There's Kishkumen and Gedeanton again, murdering to get gain, pride and ambition, power and greed. In fact, I love the verbs that Mormon's using. This pride had gotten into them at the beginning of 36, and it did grow upon them from day to day by the end. Pride is something that gets into us and then grows upon us. It feeds upon itself. It's never enough. Chop down all the trees you can. I want to use all that lumber on myself. I've got to get ahead of the neighbors. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's about being the Joneses and making sure nobody can keep up with me. Oh, this is a cancer that really will be fatal if it isn't rooted out. No wonder Helaman's trying so hard to do just that. Are you starting to feel the chair swiveling? We saw the prosperity in the church, which then led to pride and its accompanying wickedness. And if we allow that to continue, what's step number three? Destruction. You have alienated the one saving force that was keeping you from it, namely God. So in chapter four, from verses one through 13, here you see the destruction phase of the pride cycle. In verse 1, there is dissensions and contention and bloodshed. In verse 4, there are dissenters stirring people up to anger and preparing them for war. In verse 5, they commence the work of death and even succeed in obtaining possession of the land of Zarahemla. There they did it again. They captured the heart, which is what they've always aimed for. They've lost so much by verse 11. And this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them. How's that sound for destruction? It would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them. Even among those who professed to belong to the church of God. You see, destruction never would have happened if it hadn't been preceded by the pride and wickedness that alienated God and kept him from continuing to bless them. That's what verse 12 was all about, which we read previously. It was because of the pride of their hearts that led to all of these other problems that we already saw. As a result, verse 13, because of this, their great wickedness and their boastings in their own strength. How's that for pride? They were left in their own strength. Fine. You don't think you need God? Great. Do it on your own. I learned that the hard way as a missionary, and I've had a few repeat courses since then, that if I think I can do it on my own, God usually lets me try. That's the pride cycle in a nutshell. I was doing great, and I thought it was me. So I stopped asking for God's help, and he said, okay, you want to do this on your own? Be my guest. I'll still be here to help you if you'll just keep turning to me my crash and burn 
of independence usually woke me back up to that. By the way, in the midst of that passage on destruction, as Moroniha is doing everything he can to try to stave it back, verse 6 gives us an interesting detail. That the Nephites and the armies of Moroniha were driven even into the land of Bountiful. I talked about Bountiful a little bit back at the end of the war chapters. That it became the place where the prisoners of war were kept and hopefully rehabilitated. And that it was this ultimate stronghold. Well, it remains that. But keep an eye out for Bountiful. Because that's where Jesus will come in 3 Nephi 11. I love that when we are driven back, when we are pushed by persecution or the opposition of enemies, where do we finally make our stand? We make it with Jesus. With our faith in the promise that he will come. Come to deliver us. Come to redeem us. Come to heal our hearts. Keep an eye out for Bountiful. Because that's where we're headed. Now, if we'll just keep turning the chair, and this time we really have to choose to do so, to go from destruction back towards repentance and the humility that defines it. Remember, over here was wickedness defined by pride. Over here is repentance defined by humility. And in chapter 4, from verse 14 through 20, you see that stage. Verse 14, Moroniha is preaching Nephi and Lehi are preaching. They're even prophesying. And what are they preaching and prophesying about? About the repentance of their sins. Verse 15, they're promising that if they repent, they will begin to prosper. Again, that's where stage four brings us back to the beginning of it all. If we repent, humility, then we will begin to prosper once again. Verse 16, as Moroniha sees that they do begin to repent, well, he begins to lead them towards that prosperity. He ventures to lead them forth from place to place, from city to city, until they even regain half of what they had before. You see the pride cycle beginning to ease its way full circle? One of the great things about this account is that the way Helaman 4 ends, it's almost like the light bulb comes on. It's this realization of what this pride cycle has been all about. You see, in verse 21, they begin to remember what Alma had taught them, what Mosiah had taught them. They realize, we've been a stiff-necked people. We've said it not the commandments of God. 22, we've altered and trampled under our feet the laws of Mosiah. The laws have become corrupted. We've become a wicked people. We're just like the Lamanites. It's like, no wonder we got destroyed. That destruction is making sense because we brought it upon ourselves. You see, they're sitting in the swivel chair, and as they're rotating, it's like, oh, it's all beginning to make sense. This is exactly what prophets in the past have warned us about. Verse 23, because of their iniquity, the church had begun to dwindle. They began to disbelieve in the spirit of prophecy and in the spirit of revelation. No more testimony of Jesus. No more presence of the Holy Ghost. No wonder the judgments of God stared them in the face. His mercy couldn't. They hadn't accepted it. They got his judgments instead. 24, they saw that they had become weak like unto their brethren, the Lamanites. This is almost the exact phrase used to describe Samson. After he'd broken his covenants and cut his hair, he saw that he had become weak like any other man. Wait a minute. You mean it wasn't me all along? It was God strengthening me? Wow, no wonder pride led to my downfall. 
because it forced God out of the relationship. It was his covenants. He was a Nazarite. It wasn't the Nephite's physical strength. Ask the stripling warriors about that. It was the strength of the Lord. But without it, we were weak like anyone else. No better than the Lamanites. No wonder they could then beat us because they'd always outnumbered us. Remember, we saw that in the war chapters, the difference between numbers and strength. The Lamanites always had the numbers. It's that the Nephites had the strength, but it wasn't theirs. It was the Lord's. Well, as soon as they abandoned the Lord, he abandoned them to their own strength, which was woefully insufficient. And in that condition, back to verse 24, the Spirit of the Lord did no more preserve them. Yea, it had withdrawn from them because they had withdrawn from him. The Spirit of the Lord cannot dwell in unholy temples. Therefore, 25, the Lord did cease to preserve them by his miraculous and matchless power. And without it, there's no way to avoid destruction. They had fallen into a state of unbelief and awful wickedness, but now they're starting to recognize the error of their ways. They saw that the Lamanites were exceedingly more numerous than they, and except they should cleave unto the Lord their God, they must unavoidably perish it was only his power that was keeping them from that natural destruction. Verse 26, he ends this chapter. Behold, they saw that the strength of the Lamanites was as great as their strength, as long as you're talking about man for man. No wonder we've got to humble ourselves. We've got nothing to be proud of. We're no different than anybody else. We're no better. Without God, we're nothing. And it's that repentance, that humility, that then brings us back into relationship with God and his strength begins to flow into us once again. You see, the pride cycle is part natural consequence and part actual choice. Here we are in prosperity. Who pulls us towards pride? The adversary does. But we're choosing that. We're choosing to reject God, thinking we no longer need him. There's a choice. And then from pride to destruction, nobody chooses that. You didn't need to. That's natural consequence. Without God preserving you and protecting you, strengthening you, all you've got left isn't enough. So your choice to go from prosperity to pride leads to the natural consequence of going from pride to destruction. Well, now you've got another choice to make. Remember, Lucifer chose not to continue. He chose to just fester in that destruction and wanted to bring everyone else down to destruction with him. Misery loving company. On the other hand, from destruction, we can choose to turn our lives over to the Lord. That turn is repentance. See, it's almost like the adversary controls that side of the pride cycle. And the Lord controls this side. And we're just choosing which side do we want to be on? Which side will we face? Because if I make the choice to turn to the Lord, come unto me and I will come unto you. Then again, that choice is followed by a natural consequence, just like it was on the other side. I choose pride, then destruction naturally comes. I choose repentance and humility, and then blessings and prosperity naturally return. That's like the law of the harvest functioning on both sides. Alma 41 all over again. See, over here, the plan works for me. Over here, the plan works against me. Over here, I've planted darkness and harvested it. Over here, I've planted light. And what a glorious harvest is in the future, if that's our choice. You see, in some ways, the pride cycle isn't inevitable. 
You remember back in chapter 3 when we were studying the prosperity phase, back in 24 to 26? Well, yes, it led to pride in 33 and 34, but it also led to humility in 35 for those who chose it. You see 35? The humble part of the people are mentioned in 34. They're being persecuted by the wicked, but 35, but they did fast and pray oft. They kept turning to the Lord and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility. You see, too often we think of humility as a weak virtue. It's actually one of the strongest ones we can have. And they are waxing stronger and stronger in it. And as a result, firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ. It filled their souls with joy and consolation, no matter what the outside influences, right? Even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts, which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. I just want to stay on this side of the cycle. And we can. We can have prosperity. And instead of choosing pride as a result, we can choose to give all the credit to God. Yield our hearts to Him. Praise prayer, fasting, thanksgiving. And as we do so, staying on this side, the cycle actually stays on the Lord's side of the line. And my stronger and stronger humility and my firmer and firmer faith leads to greater and greater blessings from the Lord. No wonder it results in the purification and sanctification of our heart. I can't imagine greater spiritual prosperity than that. You see, it's almost like once again, we catch Helaman standing in the face of things and saying, no, I don't care the outside influences. No matter how wicked the world around me grows, I can have God's help right here. As long as I face the Father, come unto Christ, ignore the empty promises of Kishkumen or Coriantumer or Gadianton, then this is a righteousness and repentance cycle. Pride never comes into the picture. We always have that choice before us. Remember, those are the thus we sees that we saw at the end of Helaman 3. I think that is what we get to see in chapter 5, which is such a masterpiece in the Book of Mormon. It begins with an incredible act of humility on Nephi's part. You see, by now, the judgment seat has passed from father to son, from Helaman II to Nephi the whatever number you want to give him, Nephi, the father of the Nephi, will meet in third Nephi. He delivers up the judgment seat in verse 1 to a man whose name was Sizorum. We'll see a little bit more of him next week. Humble move. Actually, it seems to be family tradition. His great-grandpa, Alma the Younger, did exactly that back in Alma chapter 4. Why? Because working from the outside in is not working. I've got to start working from the inside out. So take off my political hat replace it solely with my spiritual hat, and do what? Cry repentance in hopes of convincing people to go from destruction to repentance and humility. You've got to get back on the Lord's side of the cycle, because then it will naturally bring you back to spiritual prosperity and peace. Let's use this natural consequence for us based on a choice that we have to make. Choose wisely. Choose well. Verse 4 describes it as Nephi becoming weary because of their iniquity. So he yields up the judgment seat and took it upon him to preach the word of God all the remainder of his days. His brother Lehi did the same. These two sons are two peas in a pod, great mission companions, an Alma and Amulek of sorts. 
And it all came because their father had chosen to raise them in righteousness, helping them grow up unto the Lord, as we saw already. Verse 5, they remembered the words their father Helaman had spoken. And verse 6, we get a glimpse of that father-to-son conversation. Behold, my sons, I desire that ye should remember to keep the commandments of God. Sound like the words of great-grandpa Alma to Grandpa Helaman? He said the same. I would that ye should declare unto the people these words. That seems to be the family business as well. Behold, I have given unto you the names of our first parents who came out of the land of Jerusalem. Same names the anti-Nephi-Lehi's chose for themselves. And this I have done that when you remember your names, something that happens often, you may remember them, something that otherwise might not happen so frequently. And when you remember them, ye may remember their works. Not just who they were, but what they did, how they lived, which was a reflection of who they really were. And when ye remember their works, ye may know how that it is said and also written that they were good. Sons, I want you to be good too. So in seven, therefore, my sons, I would that ye should do that which is good, that it might be said of you what was said of them. Keep the family tradition alive. Or as President Hinckley used to say, don't be the weak link in your family chain. Be a strong one. Well, these two sons were just that. Then this interesting reminder, caution in verse 8. Behold, my sons, I have somewhat more to desire of you, which desire is that ye may not do these things that ye may boast. This is coming from someone who is an expert in the pride cycle. I want you to prosper spiritually. Prosper in righteousness. Prosper in the Lord. But do not let it go to your head. Because if you make that choice, then I know the inexorable consequence. So don't go there. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Stay on the Lord's side of the cycle. Because over there, that treasure is eternal. It doesn't fade away. That's the precious gift of eternal life. Verse 9, remember, remember, my sons. Remember what King Benjamin said. Remember, there's no other way nor means whereby man can be saved. Only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ who shall come. Yea, remember that he cometh to redeem the world. That's what's going to keep you on his side, knowing that you absolutely depend upon him. That without his strength, you have no strength, at least no more than anyone else. Rely on him. Then in verse 10, don't just remember King Benjamin's words. Remember the words which Amulek spake unto Zeezrom back in the city of Ammonihah. He said that the Lord surely should come to redeem his people, but that he should not come to redeem them in their sins, but to redeem them from their sins. You see, this is how we're staying on the Lord's side of the line. It's not just paying him lip service. It's following him. It's staying with him so that he can stay with you. That's why prosperity and destruction are on opposite sides of the cycle. You can't choose the adversary's side and still reap the Lord's rewards. It's not how it works. So stay on the repentance side. Stay on the Lord's side. Verse 11, Christ has power given unto him from the Father to redeem them, but only redeem them from their sins, not in them. Because of repentance, that's what triggers that natural consequence. Your choice to shift or stay on the Lord's side of the line. He sent angels to declare these tidings of the conditions of repentance, that wasn't that the phrase that Alma kept using? And it's following those conditions 
that brings the power of the Redeemer unto the salvation of your soul. And then President Irene's beautiful word picture of the place of safety that is always open to us, no matter what the outside influences. Remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. There's no other option that when, not if, the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when, not if, all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you. That's what President Irene warned us about. It's not just to endure the storms, but to choose the right while they rage. If we've built upon that redeeming rock, then it shall have no power over you to drag you down, the natural consequence of the pride cycle, to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. What's keeping us from that slide into sin? The rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. You see, that's where the if comes in rather than the earlier whens. If you build, that's your choice. That explains all the if-then statements in Mormon's Thus We Seize. If you build on Christ, you can't fall. If you call upon him in sincerity, his mercies will naturally come. If you come unto Christ, the gate of heaven will remain open. If you rely on the Lord's word, it will provide that straight and narrow course across the gulf, through the hail and mighty storm, away from the shafts in the whirlwind. Our choice is the if, but the Lord's blessing is the then, the promised result when we build upon the rock of the Redeemer. No wonder we can always choose the joy of eternal life, however perilous the times. Well, firmly established on that rock themselves, they were ready to help others build their foundation in the same place. Verse 14, they remember those words just as encouraged. And then they go forth, keeping the commandments of God all along the way. That way they stay on the Lord's side of the cycle. And then they teach the word of God among all the people of Nephi. And where do they start? At the city bountiful. Start in the place to where the Savior will come. Build upon the rock of the Redeemer. From there, they go from one city to the next, going through all the land of Zarahemla, teaching everywhere they can. Verse 17, they preach with such great power that they confound many of the dissenters who'd gone over from the Nephites, insomuch that they did come forth and did confess their sins. There's repentance. They're starting to shift back to the Lord's side of the cycle. They're baptized unto repentance, Talk about staying in the cycle, being baptized, covenanting, promising to stay on this side of the line. I'm going to keep repenting all the time of my sins of commission and sins of omission. I refuse to ever get over on the adversary's side of the cycle. And those who are baptized unto repentance immediately start repenting. They return to the Nephites and endeavor to repair unto them the wrongs which they had done. Sound like the sons of Mosiah? Sound like Alma the Younger? I love those three R words in 17. They repent, they return, and they repair. Beautiful process. Not content to stay among the Nephites 
or the Nephite dissenters. In 18, they now preach among the Lamanites, but still with such great power and authority, for power and authority was given unto them that they might speak, and also to know what they should speak. Again, they're relying on the Lord's strength, and he is giving it to them. Verse 19, they spoke with such power that it was to the great astonishment of the Lamanites, to the convincing them, such that 8,000 Lamanites are converted, baptized unto repentance, get into the Lord's side of the cycle, convinced of the wickedness and the traditions of their fathers, to scare them away from the other side of the cycle. Now, they're still not done. This might even be a better example of this expanding circle of concern that we saw way back in the book of Enos, when Enos prays for his own forgiveness and then for the strength of his own people and then turns his heart outward toward the Lamanites. Well, here, Nephi and Lehi are doing the same. Preaching to the Nephites, converting Nephite dissenters, converting Lamanites in the land of Zarahemla. And then in verse 20, from there, proceeding on to the land of Nephi, the original Lamanite territory. You see, those first 8,000 Lamanite converts were in Zarahemla. Well, now let's go all the way down into the lion's den, Lamanite headquarters. Well, when they got there, verse 21, they're immediately cast into prison. In fact, the same prison that Ammon, this is not Ammon chopping off arms, but the earlier Ammon that goes in search of the people of Zenith, when he goes and is discovered by Limhi, he casts him into prison until he tells him, I've only come to save you. A beautiful echo down the ages, the same kind of thing happening. We've come to save you, to bring you home, to lead you across the gulf of woe by sharing with you the word, which is the straight and narrow course provided. Well, as they are in prison, Nephi and Lehi, verse 23, they are encircled about as if by fire. Now, this is truly miraculous, but in some ways, this describes Nephi and Lehi's life from the start. Helaman, their father, deciding to stay surrounded by darkness, confident that they would be protected by fire. The light of the Lord, the purifying, cleansing power of his atonement, that even feeling imprisoned by the darkness and sin all around you, you can be encircled about as if by fire. That's exactly what's happening here. Because in 23, when Nephi and Lehi are encircled about by fire, compare that to 28, where the others in prison are overshadowed with a cloud of darkness. You see, in 24, Nephi and Lehi's hearts take courage. 28, those still in darkness have an awful, solemn fear come upon them. I love the difference between 23 and 24 and 28. Light versus darkness courage versus fear. And what is it that gives Nephi and Lehi that courage? The fact that they saw, end of 23, that this fire is not burning us. It's actually blessing us. Sometimes we worry about the heat that we face as we're surrounded by a wicked world. But that heat might actually be forging stronger steel within our souls. I mean, yes, in the parable of the sower, the sunlight is what scorched the plants on the rocky soil. But isn't sunlight actually good for plants? Of course it is. But only if they have enough water to offset it. 
drill down, sink those tap roots until they find living water, and then bring on all the sunlight you can give. Bring on the heat. That was Nephi and Lehi. Build your foundation on the rock of the Redeemer, and then let the winds blow. It's like what Elder Anderson taught us about trees in the storm. They become stronger because of that opposition. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all over again in the fiery furnace. But it did not consume them. It did not burn them. It introduced them to a fourth figure in the flames. And he was one like unto the Son of God. We come to know God in our extremities. It's exactly what's happening here. What do we sing in How Firm a Foundation? The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's actually one correction I would give to the book of Daniel's account. It says that the fire had no effect on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Singing that hymn, I would say, oh, it had a great effect. It left them refined. And growing up in the darkness had the same effect on Lehi and Nephi. We're just seeing it most visibly here in this Lamanite prison. Well, these two brothers take advantage of the moment. They begin to speak forth in verse 26, and they say to others there, Fear not, for behold, it is God that has shown unto you this marvelous thing in the which it's shown unto you that you cannot lay your hands on us to slay us. We're safe here, even in prison. As they said it, verse 27, the earth shook exceedingly. The walls of the prison shake as if they were about to tumble to the earth. Their voice is then joined by another. In verse 29, there came a voice as if it were above the cloud of darkness. The Lord is always able to rise above whatever things we find ourselves in. And from that higher elevation, comes this call to a higher life. Repent ye, repent ye. Seek no more to destroy my servants whom I have sent unto you to declare good tidings. I've got the good news, the way out of Satan's side of the pride cycle. The fact you can choose to leave his side. It happens through repentance. Verse 30, that voice was not a voice of thunder. It was not a voice of a great tumultuous noise. Rather, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, almost like a whisper, yet it pierced them to the very soul. That's what's happening on their inside. And yet on their outside, 31, the earth is still shaking exceedingly. The prison walls are still trembling. The cloud of darkness is still overshadowing them. Can you tell the difference, you Lamanites and Nephite dissenters that are filling this prison? Work from the inside out. Heed this peaceful, piercing voice. Ignore the shaking and trembling all around you. Ignore the darkness. Pierce through it with the Lord's redeeming light. Verse 32, the voice came yet again saying, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Seek no more to destroy my servants. And still the earth shakes and the walls tremble. 33, a third time the voice comes. We would expect yet another repetition of repent, repent. And perhaps that was part of it. But it says in 33 that this time it spake marvelous words which cannot be uttered by man. I'd love to know what that was. And still the walls tremble and the earth shakes. How many times will it take 
before they start to see the difference between outward and inward, between darkness and light, between shaking and trembling and founding themselves on the rock of the Redeemer. Which side of the cycle do you want to spend your days? Now in 34, the Lamanites could not flee, and that's okay. You don't have to. Nephi and Lehi knew that because their father, Helaman, had chosen not to flee from the darkness himself, but rather to inject it with light. But there in the midst of that darkness, 35, was a Nephite by birth, one who had once belonged to the church of God, but had dissented from them. This is the male equivalent of Abish, that there in King Lamoni's court, she alone understands what's going on and becomes this instrument in the Lord's hands to spread light throughout that Lamanite village. Well, likewise, here this man, his name is Aminadab, he, unlike others, knows what's going on. He'd been raised in the light. He just had rejected it since then. In 36, when he turns himself about, he can see through the cloud of darkness. After all, he'd been familiar with the light at some point in his life. He saw the faces of Nephi and Lehi, and they did shine exceedingly, even as the faces of angels. What are they doing? What anyone should do in the midst of a fiery furnace. Look to the face of the fourth. They lifted up their eyes to heaven. They were in the attitude as if talking or lifting their voices to some being whom they beheld. He's with you in the prison. He's with you in the darkness. He's with you through the war. In 37, this man cries unto the multitude and says, you've got to turn and look. Can you think of better verbs to describe what repentance is? You're over here in destruction. Just turn. Just look. See what the Lord is offering you over here. That is repentance. Nephi and Lehi had cried it. The voice from heaven had cried it repeatedly. Now one of their own who knew better is crying it as well. Verse 40, they then ask him, What shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be removed from overshadowing us? It's like the Jews who finally get it with Peter's preaching and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Aminadab's answer is just like Peter's. He says in verse 41, You must repent, but I just told you, turn and look, and cry unto the voice even until ye shall have faith in Christ. That's what convinces us to build upon that rock. Have faith in him who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. When you do this, the cloud of darkness shall be removed from overshadowing you. I love the fellow witnesses that he calls to the stand. All of whom, like himself, had chosen darkness at the expense of light and then saw the light and turned and came to it. That describes Alma the Younger fighting against the church until he saw the light. That describes Amulek, who knew but would not know until he saw the light. That describes Zeezrom, who is trying to pull people away from God until he saw the light and came running. Well, that was the invitation they finally heeded. 42, they cry even until the cloud of darkness was dispersed. And then in 43, they cast their eyes about See that the cloud of darkness is gone, and now they, just like Nephi and Lehi before them, are encircled about, yea, every soul, by a pillar of fire. 44, that fire is described, it did not harm them, 
Neither did it take hold upon the walls of the prison, but they were filled with that joy which is unspeakable and full of glory. That is the fire of faith. It's the fire of the Holy Ghost. Cloven tongues of fire is how it was described on the day of Pentecost. 45, the Holy Spirit of God came down from heaven, entered into their hearts, and they were filled as if with fire. They could speak forth marvelous words. You see, their joy was unspeakable in 44, but they were able to speak something in 45. In fact, their voice was joined by another in 46, the one they'd heard earlier, a pleasant voice, just a whisper, this time not saying, repent, repent. You see, that was the call to make a choice to shift from Satan's side to the Lord's side of the cycle. Now, is the natural consequence. You made your choice to come here. Now let me bring you back to prosperity. In 47, peace, peace be unto you because of your faith in my well-beloved who was from the foundation of the world. And as they begin looking up from whence the voice came, they saw the heavens open and the angels came down and ministered unto them. 300 souls who were then told to go forth and don't marvel and don't doubt. Not doubt in terms of, I'm not sure if that is true, but doubt in terms of, is that too good to believe? Oh, it is that good. But believe it. Don't doubt it. It's true. You're back on the Lord's side. And he wants to pull you towards peace and prosperity. So in 50, they go forth, they minister unto all the people. They declare throughout all the regions round about, all the things which they had heard and seen. And as a result, the more part of the Lamanites, right there in Lamanite headquarters, were convinced of them because of the greatness of the evidences which they had received. What evidences? The changed hearts of those that they were hearing from. Thus convinced in 51, they lay down their weapons of war. And they lay down their hatred and wicked traditions right alongside them. And then they yield up unto the Nephites the lands of their possession. All the warfare that Moronihah was pursuing to try to regain their cities, Nephi and Lehi had a much more peaceful plan. Oh, just convert everyone. They'll not only lay down their weapons, but they'll yield up their possessions. They're no longer possessed by those possessions like they'd been before. Now, chapter 6, we can sum up very simply. There are two different directions we can face within this pride cycle. We saw that before. The prosperity of the church led some people to pride and let other people to become stronger and stronger in their humility. You see, in chapter 6, verse 1, the Lamanites had become, the more part of them, a righteous people. This is going to be important when we meet Samuel the Lamanite in two weeks insomuch that their righteousness did exceed that of the Nephites because of their firmness and their steadiness in the faith. We see more of that in 3 through 5. The people of the church have great joy because of the conversion of the Lamanites. They fellowship one with another. They rejoice one with another. They have great joy together. Verse 4, the Lamanites come down into the land of Zarahemla. They declare unto the people of the Nephites the manner of their conversion. They exhort them to faith and repentance. I love this. New converts strengthening and calling to repentance the lifelong members. 
And then in five, they preach with exceedingly great power and authority. They bring down many of them into the depths of what? Humility. To become what? The humble followers of God and the Lamb. They've chosen the right side of the cycle. Meanwhile, verse two, many of the Nephites had become hardened and impenitent and grossly wicked insomuch that they did reject the word of God and all the preaching and prophesying which came among them. You see this fascinating role reversal? The Lamanites have become more righteous than the Nephites, and many of the Nephites have become more wicked than the Lamanites. Fascinating. And when you jump ahead to verse 31, it happened because Satan had got such great hold upon the hearts of the Nephites. That's always his aim. Work from the inside out. They had become exceedingly wicked. The more part of them had turned out of the way of righteousness and did trample under their feet the commandments of God and did turn unto their own ways. They'd been on the Lord's side of the line. They turned to the adversary's side of the cycle. They rejected God and therefore had no divine strength and were left to their own and thus destruction was imminent. You see here, the cycle renews. From 8 to 14, here's prosperity again. Phrases like exceedingly rich, exceeding plenty, all manner of gold and of silver, rich, abundance, flourish exceedingly, multiply and wax exceedingly strong, great joy and peace. But if we're not careful, what does prosperity lead to if we choose to succumb to pride? Verse 15 through 19 is the wickedness and pride segment of the cycle. Two successive chief judges are murdered. Sounds like we're starting the book of Helaman all over again. And then phrases like exceedingly wicked, set their hearts upon their riches, seek to get gain, lifted up one above another, rob and plunder to get gain, all at the hands of Gadianton's robbers and murderers. In fact, at the end of 18, it says they called themselves that. Talk about unapologetic. No longer the need of the secrecy and subtlety and disguise of Kishkumen. Now we can come boldly out. We are Gadianton's robbers and murderers. That's what we're here for. Pride and wealth, ambition and greed. Well, what are we to do? Two choices here. The Lamanite plan we see in verse 20. When the Lamanites found that there were robbers among them, they were exceedingly sorrowful. They did use every means in their power to destroy them off the face of the earth. But having laid down their weapons earlier, how were they supposed to destroy the Gadianton robbers? Jump ahead to 37. Came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of robbers of Gadianton. And what they do once they hunted them down? They did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them. I love this. We're going to destroy them. We're going to hunt them. We're going to preach the gospel. No better way to root out wickedness. We're working from the inside out, right? Insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites, destroyed in the best possible way. Meanwhile, what was the Nephite plan? Back in 21, Satan did stir up the hearts of the more part of the Nephites insomuch that they did unite with those bands of robbers. They entered into their covenants and oaths that they would protect and preserve one another. And as a result of that, 38 through 40, the Nephites built them up, supported them, 
until they had overspread all the land. They'd seduced the more part of the righteous until they'd come down to believe in their works and partake of their spoils and join with them in their secret murders and combinations. And that way they could continue their wicked work, accelerating the cycles on the adversary's side. 39, thus they did obtain the sole management of the government, that was the pride and ambition half, insomuch they did trample under their feet and smite and rend and turn their backs upon the poor and the meek and the humble followers of God. There's the greed and materialism side of things. And 40, Mormons thus we see, they were in an awful state, ripening for an everlasting destruction. What a difference to compare the Nephite plan to the Lamanite plan when it came to how to deal with these Gadianton robbers. No wonder the Lamanites are beginning to blossom as the rose. There's a humility there. And not just in the Lamanites who are converting in Helaman. There is a beautiful humility in those who are joining the church in our day. And I don't just mean Lamanites by lineage. Anyone who might have been considered an outsider, an outcast, but deciding to come in to the welcoming embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with verses 34 through 36. Three more thus we seize from Mormon. What are we supposed to take away from all of this study this week? 34, thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and grow in wickedness and abominations. That's one side of the cycle while the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. Yea, they began to keep his statutes and commandments and to walk in truth and uprightness before him. See the differences side by side? Dwindle versus grow. Unbelief versus knowledge. Wickedness versus uprightness. And the choice is always ours. In verse 35, another thus we see. The Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites because of the wickedness and hardness of their hearts. You see, they had withdrawn from him. Compared to 36, thus we see that the Lord began to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites. Why? Because of their easiness, their willingness to believe in his words. That is a humble heart. The Nephites beginning in prosperity, had chosen pride, and the natural consequence was destruction. The Lamanites, starting in destruction, had chosen repentance and humility, and the natural consequence was prospering through the gospel of Christ. The choice was theirs, and the choice is ours. Wherever we live, no matter what the outside influences, we can choose the Lord's side of the line. I am so grateful for that because I don't know all that the future holds, but I know enough of what the future holds to stand between concern and courage, worry over my family versus faith in their future. These are our days. Days of darkness on the outside, but days of glorious light within. Days that will culminate in the coming of the light of the world. May these days, your days, be great days as we use them to choose to come unto Christ.